Hey folks, welcome to Florida Uncut, the podcast all about the people behind the protection and connection of Wild Florida. And today's guest is the son of arguably one of the people that have done the most for the protection of Wild Florida, and not in a standard way, and it was through a historical fiction novel called A Land Remembered. If you at all love Old Florida or Wild Florida, you've probably heard of the book A Land Remembered. It is hard to overstate just how impactful this book was that came out in the mid-1980s, and it's a story about three generations of a pioneer family making their way and trying to survive in the Florida wilderness. And the story is so captivating and so moving, and and you close the book longing for that scenery, longing for that setting and way of life, and it has inspired an entire generation of conservationists, farmers, and, and everything else of people that want to keep Florida wild and keep it protected. And you need to go read the book. In fact, I'm giving away three copies to the first three people that reach out to me at mason at adventuresportspodcast.com or at Florida Uncut on Instagram or Facebook. Just message us, say, I want a copy of the book. If you're one of the first three, I'm giving you a copy. Well, Patrick, the author, is no longer with us. But his son, Rick, has carried on the legacy, doing presentations all over the state and helping folks far and wide fall in love with Florida and advocating for protecting it. So please get a copy of the book. Go to alandremembered.com. And Rick, this is by far my favorite book. And it was a huge, huge honor to have you on. Thank you for the work you do. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. All right, folks, welcome to Florida Uncut. You heard a little bit of, of Rick's story in the intro, uh, but I want to officially welcome him. Rick, Rick Smith, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. Have you done a bunch of podcasts? I know you have done hundreds of talks all around Florida. Uh, how, is, is podcast still a newer platform for you? It is in this context. I've done a lot of them um, with marketing and music. I play guitar and I've done a lot of uh, Zoom uh, open mics and stuff like that but uh, and i've had schools ask me to do podcasts with them and it just hasn't happened yet so i haven't done too many regarding uh patrick smith and a land remembered it's kind of nice to uh you know you don't have to stand in front of a bunch of people and have a presentation you can just <laughs> yeah. talk have a conversation it still reaches tons of people yeah and when i when i did my shows I also uh, dressed in victorian garb <laughs> kind of to set the stage so i don't do that now <laughs> not today yeah, I noticed. Uh, I noticed you didn't have that on, which is fine. Which is fine. I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. Neither do I. Um, you know, we we hear so much about your dad and his work. Who is Rick Smith? What do you do? Well, I'm pretty much retired now. I spent my life working at uh, California Polytechnic State University in video production, media production, and then public affairs for the College of Engineering out there. And then I started my own video production business. And um, did that for about 12 years. And then I kind of stuck my foot in with my dad's legacy. And that ended up taking a whole new direction in my life. Because I started doing these. I did a video about him that got very popular. And then I started going on these speaking tours and selling his books. And so um, I still do that. But mostly I'm retired now and uh, enjoy playing guitar a lot. You know, you you basically... Um you know, went out on your own, went to the West Coast, had your own career and whatnot. Was, you know, your dad's 
did your dad's legacy follow you there in the sense of just crossing paths? I know his impact was worldwide, or did you feel like you really did have your own your own path out there? Yeah, I felt like that. I came out here and um, I didn't mean to stay, but I just came out and stumbled into this job at university and stayed there. And so I wasn't really involved with him when he was really gaining notoriety. And he would send me newspaper articles and magazine articles about him. He kept me updated about what he was doing. And I thought, wow, that's really, really great, Dad, what you're doing out there. But personally, I wasn't involved in it until about the year 2005. And then I started really getting involved in his life and realized what an impact he had on people. I, I heard you say too before that uh, you, you really didn't know his impact until he was uh, in the Florida Artist Hall of Fame. And I'm like, yeah, what a, <laughs> that's, it's like Michael Jordan's kid saying, I didn't realize he was a good basketball player until he was inducted yeah. to the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, I was there when he, he got that award. Um, and I, I was aware that with the land remembered, he'd really taken off. But even before that, uh, for, a lot of people ask me, well, I've read a land remembered. What else should I read? And I always say read forever Island. And that's the book that really kicked him into being recognized worldwide. And once that happened, it was, it was published as a, one of those reader's digest condensed books. And it was published in like 40 languages all around the world. And then I realized, okay, you've really, you're, you're going somewhere, dad. So I think that book really got the world's attention for him. T tell us a little bit about that, because I, I haven't heard you, anyone really talk about that. I, as I was doing research, I found that Forever Island got a lot of people interested in Seminole culture and originally Florida. And, and it was, like you said, a worldwide audience that was paying attention to this. And it and took them to pretty deep corners of the world prior to the launch of A Land Remembered. It did, yeah. And I, I mean, he was traveling all over Russia and Siberia. And, and, and how, how did that book end up in those places? Well, I think it was because I'm not sure if it was because the Reader's Digest convinced, condensed books or if it was published separately from stories. He tells me it was published just as a single title over there. And it just got so popular. People were curious about Seminole Indians and uh, America and things. And he got invited to go over there and speak at uh, a Russian writers union. So him and my mom went over there and they the Russian writers union paid for everything, the airfare, hotels took him all over the Soviet Union and ended up out in the far eastern parts of the Soviet Union then. And um, he was he was so amazed that people over there would be interested in a book about the Seminole Indians. And there's uh, Forever Island's a really easy read book. It's there's no sex in it. No, you know, no guns. Nobody gets shot. Uh, people were fascinated by it. And he said he went to this one, um, he gave a lecture in the University of Samarkand, and he said he didn't expect people to be there, and it filled the room. The auditorium was filled with people standing along the walls, and he said when he went outside, there were about 400 people out there waiting, and they all had copies of Forever Island that they wanted him to sign, and he went through and signed it. He was just kind of like a rock star over there. It was kind of surprising. And then the next year, the Writers Union invited him back again to lecture at some other places in St. Petersburg and Moscow. And then, then he got invited to go be a keynote speaker at, in Bulgaria at an international Writers Union meeting. So, like I said, Forever Island really kicked him off. And it's probably been read by more people in more languages, certainly, than for a, a land remembered. 
it has a broader reach, whereas Land Remembered has a burning hot core right here in the state. You know, like that, that's the way I, I see it. And what what did your what did he say? The reasoning behind why he felt like it had such a a, a grasp in other parts of the world. What what was his explanation? Well, one thing he says is uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, a lot of the Russian friends started coming over to the United States to visit him there in Florida. And he said they weren't really interested in the resorts and the theme parks and all that. The thing they really wanted to see was an alligator. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I think they were just fascinated with Seminole culture and, um, you know, some of the struggles that people were having in this country. That's the impression I got. How do you think that book, Forever Island, um, informed and kind of led to a land remembered because you know that that's if that's your if that's your freshman or that's your first big hit you know you you got a follow-up that that you really become known for how, how do you think it, it it changed the way if at all he, he wrote a land remembered well that was the first book he wrote in florida and about florida and he didn't know anything about seminole indians really he didn't and so he spent quite a bit of time trying to break into their culture enough to learn something about it. And he would go down there and take notes and of the plants and everything that they were talking about. He didn't know about things like gumbo limbo trees and all the things that show up in that book. And he was still kind of on fire with after that with knowledge of the Seminoles. And he did write another book after that called Alapata, which is another book about the Seminoles set down there. He often got his ideas from looking at articles in the paper. And Forever Island, he said he read an article about how these developers are coming in and taking away the land from the Seminoles. And he felt that he kind of had to make a statement about that. And then he read another article about some of these migrant camps down in South Florida where the poor migrant workers would be almost held like slaves. They wouldn't get paid. They couldn't get out of the migrant camp. And he went down there and did a lot of research and out of that came the novel Angel City, which was made into a CBS movie of the week. And all of this stuff kind of gave him a, a much richer feeling and background in Florida. And then he wanted to write a, a novel about a little bit of Florida history. He said there had been books about Florida history, but uh, he wanted not that went back to 1850 and followed. It was a novel fiction. He wanted to write his fiction, not a history book. And all these other books just kind of led him down a path where he could write. A land remembered. He had to have read about, learned about the Seminoles before he could write a land remembered. I mean, he was building that that knowledge base and that experience. And I know with a lot of those early books, he went and like lived the lifestyle. He did he did some investigative journalism where he would go and basically in disguise and work at a migrant camp and just to understand what it was like. Did he do anything like that for a land remembered? No, he didn't really. Well, he went around and, and spoke to a lot of these old native Floridian families. He didn't do the kind of research he did for Angel City, where he actually worked as a migrant worker. Um, but he went and talked to a lot of old families. He said people would call him up and say, you need to go talk to this old guy. Go go here over there and go talk to these families because they've been here for three or four generations. And he would do that and kind of put together a picture of, you know, what life was like 150 years ago. People would tell him, well, this is what my great granddad said and what my granddad said. So he did a lot of that. And then he read a lot of books about Florida history, events that happened. 
you know, got to remind people that the land remembered is fiction. It's not a history book. And a lot of people think, well, if, if their native Floridians have been here for generations, they'll say, well, he wrote that about my family. Well, he didn't. It, he just took all these stories that people shared with him and kind of made it into one family, the, the McIvey family. What do you remember about that process when he was going through this? You know, what, where, what stage of life were you in? I was raising a kid. <laughs> I was out here in California. <laughs> so really from, I was there at the house when he was writing Forever Island. I remember him sitting at a typewriter and typing and I'd start to play my guitar, play the organ. And he'd say, can you stop? Because I'm concentrating. <laughs> but I really wasn't there when he wrote these other books. And so I, I don't know really, other than what he told me about the stories he went, the things he went through to research for Angel City or Forever Island. He said it was very hard to write Forever Island because he didn't know anything about Seminoles and he couldn't just make it up or, you know, people would call him, well, that's not right. Mm-hmm. So he'd go down there a lot of times on weekends, go down and, and um, hang around with them. And they didn't really want to welcome him in because he's an outsider and they kind of were a closed society. So he said he took him a long time to break into the Seminoles. And I didn't really, I wasn't involved in him doing that so much as I remember him sitting at the, at the table at night or on weekends typing. Cause he always had a job. I was going to say he's doing this while, you know, working a full-time job. Yeah. He always had a job. Every single book up until the last ride, he was retired when he wrote the last ride, but all of his other books, he had a job. He couldn't just sit home and write. So he'd come home and write at night, get up early in the morning and write. And sometimes he'd start on Friday night and type until Sunday night. He'd just type, type, type. He typed on a typewriter. He never learned to use a computer. And I tried to get him to once and he he wasn't going to have anything to do with that. (laughs) He literally used a typewriter. And I think it had a one page memory. So if he wanted to rewrite something, that's as far back as he'd go. And maybe he'd get to an editor and they'd say, well, you got to change this and change that. And he'd have to go back and type the whole hold uh, chapter over again it was really hard for him for me i i love computers from the first time they came out but i couldn't get him to be technological at all what was y'all's relationship like well like i say from about 1975 on i was out here in california and i'd go back and visit and he'd send me articles that were written about him and stuff but you know when i was a kid what surprised me one year uh, well, before that, he had broken his arm really badly, I think, before I was born or about the time I was born. He never could play ball or anything like that. So we didn't have that kind of a, a relationship. But then one year, I was about 12 years old, and it was Christmas. And um, we'd opened all the presents, and Dad said, oh, there's one more way, way back behind the Christmas tree. And they pulled it out and said, oh, it's for Rick. And I opened it up, and it was a shotgun. <laughs> he bought me a Stevens 410 shotgun. I was, I was shocked. I was like 12 years old. I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. And then uh, well, he said, well, if you got a shotgun, I guess I have to get one. <laughs> so I think that was his way of getting a shotgun. So he went out and bought himself a shotgun and we started, we spent a couple of years. It was fun. We'd go out and hunt quail or deer. I never shot a deer, but uh, we'd go out hunting. And that was probably the most together stuff we ever did was going hunting and fishing. Once we moved to Florida in 1966, he bought a, we lived on a canal, a waterfront house there. And first thing he did, he went out and bought me a little 
eight or 10 foot John boat, little aluminum boat with a little mercury motor. And I just loved going around all the canals and everything in that. And then he bought up about a, I guess it was about a 18 foot pleasure boat. And we all would go out and go fishing and ride up the rivers and had a good time with that. But um, we never were the kind of father son that we play ball together and things like that. Cause he couldn't, I remember one time he tried to take up golf and uh, he was trying to show me how to do it one time. He's standing behind me and I took the golf club and swung it back, and hit him right in the chest. <laughs> so we weren't, I'm not a sports oriented person really. And and so that part never really happened. You know, in your exploration out, that's a uh, really fascinating. What, what do you, did he comment all the time about Florida changing? You know, y'all were, y'all moved here right around the time of Disney, you know, that that's a huge yeah. change that was, you know, you saw it firsthand was he always commenting on that? Because I feel like me, uh, you know, my wife's probably so sick of me here and talk about, just basically rant about every development we see every time we drive anywhere. And w- was your dad like that? Was he always talking about these things or was it more internal reflection? I think it's somewhere in between there. I feel that way. because I used to come to Florida in the 1950s and we'd stay with my grandparents in Deland and they had this old Florida cracker house sort of with a tin roof and they didn't have air conditioning. And I just knew the old Florida. And then, you know, I've seen all the developments and, and dad would, he's, he wrote a thing about when he went up to, he was on the electric circuit quite a bit. And he went up to Destin and Fort Walton beach. And he said, he'd been there as a child and it, it was beautiful beaches. And he said, now it's solid condos. You can't see anything. Can't see the beach anymore. And, I think that development affected him a lot. And he was kind of trying to get that point across with Forever Island about overdevelopment of the land. So, yeah, it's a sore point with me, too. And, you know, when I go on, on these lecture tours, I always ask the, the audience, how many people here were born in Florida? And maybe there's 400 people in the audience. And I'm lucky if two hands go up. Really? Everybody's from someplace else. It's 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 a state not a lot of people are from for sure and, and including your father and you right we're both from mississippi but a lot of people i think they up north they they come down and they find a place like the villages or someplace like that and they never really get out and see the rest of the state there's still some parts of florida that haven't been changed that much more in the inner parts and i think that's one of the great things about a land remembered is a lot of people come here and somebody that's lived here says, "You, if you're going to live here, you got to read this book, Land Remembered. And I've had literally thousands of comments uh, from people saying this opened my eyes to a completely different Florida that I didn't know existed. And so many people think Florida is just orange groves and Disney and beaches. And that book shows you that there's a lot more than that to it. There has been and there still is in places. Yes, there, there's a lot, you know, that, that one reason I started this show is to, to shed light on how many people are working to protect what's left of, of Florida. And, you know, nearly a third of Florida is under some sort of conservation now, 30, 30%. And the goal is close to 45, 50%. So if, if we get there, that's a significant amount. And I get to see it firsthand a lot. But um, you you probably know where this is, or at least heard of it. I, I'm from the small town of Frostproof, mm-hmm. near River Ranch and the Kissimmee River, and so I, I, you know that book, and I'm sure you've heard this too. It's you know right up there with the Bible in in, in everybody's uh, 
you know, every on everyone's nightstand, uh, kind of the most revered books. And Mike, I, you know, I, I hate to admit I didn't read it until a few years ago, and I don't know why. I've heard stories where I'd be doing a speaking tour somewhere, and and a woman would come up and say, you know, my husband hadn't read a book since he was in high school, and I gave him a copy of The Land Remembered, and he stayed up all night long. And one guy told me, you know, sometimes it sits on a shelf for a year, several years before somebody finally digs in. And once they do, they usually don't stop. And this one guy told me he went on a, a fishing trip with some friends for like three days and went out to a cabin. And there was a copy of The Land Remembered there. And he says, I never went fishing. He opened the book and just sat there and finished reading it that weekend. I hear those stories all the time. The person that introduced me to it was, um, I was in high school, and this was the first time I really heard someone really basically tell me, you need to read this, and it was my best friend in high school who had come here on a raft from Cuba when he was eight or nine years old, and had bounced around from Miami to Naples to you know different places, come from you know a Spanish-speaking family, first-generation uh, uh, English speaker. And, and he got a hold of that book. And I think our 10th grade English class. And he's like, man, you, you have to read this. You have, he, he, I saw, I remember for about a week, every day at lunch, he's reading that, not talking to us. And he's like, this is incredible. It'll capture anybody. Yeah. And you know, there's a student version of it that, um, a lot of fourth graders in Florida read. And I've spoken at a lot of schools and those kids, it's probably for a lot of them, and the teachers have said this, it's the first book this kid ever read cover to cover. And um, dad tells me stories too about, he said he met, he got a call from this old citrus farmer in Florida that read the book like five times and wanted to meet him. So he took my mom and dad out to dinner. And then about a, six months later, this guy's daughter called and said, he's got terminal cancer. He's dying. And she said his requ last request was, he wanted two things in his hospice room. He wanted his Bible and a land remembered. And he wanted uh, his daughter to read this, his favorite phrase from a land remembered. And she said, as I, as I was reading it, he passed away. And dad's heard a couple of times that story of people. You know, the last thing they heard was some something from a land remembered. And the interesting, cool thing is, you know, for, ki for kids from 10 or 11 years old up to 100 years old, that book just reaches in and touches them somehow. Did you have that experience when you yeah. read it or were you too close to it? No, I did. There, there are places in there that I've read it, you know, maybe five times because I have to get refreshed on it when I'm going to speak into her. But there's certain things in there like what happened to Glenda and, you know, I'm not going to give away things for people that haven't read it or the dogs, you know, there's certain scenes. I just, God, does it have to be this way? Every time I read it, can, can it change? Cause I don't want to read that part again. And the funny thing, when they they made the student version, they took out some of the swear words. It's only like probably five swear words in there. But they left all the violence in, all the stuff that you would think they wouldn't want kids to see. They left that in. But kids love it. Kids love it. Yeah, I'm I'm reading Totch to my four-year-old right now, if you know that one. It's about a, a yeah. gladesman. And, um, I mean, every other page is somebody – some more bodies floating in the Everglades. I'm like, dad, come, this is a little too dark for him. I kind of, yeah. I'm, I'm constantly covering up the language with, you know, so-and-so ran away or whatever it is. And I'm like, golly, I need to switch to something else. So maybe I'll do that student version of Elaine Remembered. Um, yeah. What, what was your, 
you know, this this book came out, it feels like it came out 100 years ago, of course, or back in the 60s, you know, when it ends, but it came out relatively uh, recently. This was right before I was born uh, in 85 or in 84. And um, what was what was the reaction? Because I know that he got, your, your dad got a lifetime achievement award nominated for Nobel Prize the year after. So it must have had a pretty immediate impact. It did. And, you know, interesting thing is Pineapple Press published it. It was the first, they were just a startup publisher. And dad had a hard time getting it published, believe it or not. He sent it to several publishers and they said no. So Pineapple Press took the risk. And that book, I, I credit it with making Pineapple Press very successful. And they've since sold Pineapple Press to another company called Roman and Littlefield, which is much, much bigger company. But it pretty much started out right off the bat being popular because he'd already, you know, had a lot of recognition from Forever Island still at that point. So it it didn't languish very long. And to this day, which, you know, it's published in 1984. To this day, his royalties are a little bit bigger every year. It's like that book is not going away anytime soon. What do you think it is about the book that makes it grow over time rather than being a flash in the pan or just, you know, anything else that's successful does well, then it kind of, you know, peters out over time. Uh, I guess maybe it's the story and the characters and just the fact that it goes back to 1858 and, you know, a lot of stuff you read today is sci-fi or it's romance or something like that. And this is just a different kind of book and it takes you back to a different time. And for kids, you know, it's got, Indians and horses and snakes and alligators and a lot of fun stuff. And I think it's just, it's a trip to another time that you never, you didn't realize existed before you read this book. Once it came out, what were some of the most immediate things to take place? You know, was it people started advocating for protecting wild Florida? Was it, uh, you know, I, I don't know. What, what did you, what do you remember? Or what did you learn about, some of that immediate change that took place because of the book. I think he made a lot of friends and the capacity to influence that, like governors and uh, politicians. And he got uh, on a lot of boards. Uh, like there was some, I can't think of the name of it now, some Seminole Indian or rights boards or something like that. And he just got, started being asked to be part of a lot of those kinds of things. And then that's what really kicked off his lecture circuit too. And so he, he just met so many people and influenced so many people. And if you ever heard him talk, like we said, he's from Mississippi, he has this wonderful old voice. And oh, I yeah. did capture that because I made a DVD of, or video of him. And when he get up to speak, he didn't take notes he just got up and talked. And if you want him to talk about Indians or want him to talk about the environment, he, he'd just get up and do it. And I think he influenced a lot of people because he gave so many lectures to so many different groups of people. You have as well. What, what would you say on that story arc or not that story arc, but that, that since it's release, would you, would you say there was a land remembered height you know, as far as land remembered mania, maybe height, or has it been fairly consistent as far as the attention it receives and the influence it has? Well, at one point, somebody wanted to make a, a re, not a resort, but a 
a theme park or something based on it. A lot of people have done that. I wanted to. And then uh, I think Florida His Tampa History Museum has a little section called it Land Remembered. And you go in there and some like a little building with little so kids can go in and sit in there. And uh, several museums I've spoken at have parts of it dedicated to a land remembered. When I went into the Ford Edison Museum, you walk into their gift shop and there was a video. My video was playing there. And then they had a big display of his books. And, you know, there's a a land remembered restaurant in Orlando at the Rosin Shingle Creek. Mr. Rosin built many, many of the big hotels in Orlando in the last probably 35, 40 years. And the biggest one is Rosen Shingle Creek, which has an 18 hole golf course and like a 50,000 square foot convention center. And before, when he was building that, he asked dad, can, can I name the steakhouse a land remembered dad or say, oh, yeah, I'd be honored, which is another point I'd like to talk about. <laughs> but uh, so you go to Orlando, and, and I I get all these emails from restaurant reviews in Orlando, and Rosen Schinkel, the uh, Land Remembered restaurants, always like number one. And so that was, they kind of took the uh, the mojo of a Land Remembered and, and put it in their steakhouse. And there's a little room in there where you can have a private little uh, dinners called the McIvy Room. There are places I've been at the Florida State Fair where they had a section called the Land Remembered Temporary. So it's it's been used a lot. And my point I wanted to make was dad was so nice. He would never hurt anybody's feelings or ask for something. So he never got anything for all those people that used his name. He just let them use it. <laughs> How did he deal with the fame and with the attention it brought? Did he seem to kind of take it in stride? It was, you know, a gradual build with Forever Island and all the hard work or was he, you know, uncomfortable with it? I think he was surprised. He never, uh, he took it all in stride. It never went to his head and he always was just such a normal person. You know, it didn't make him feel like he was anything special. He would be, if people call him up he'd be happy to talk to him. If they call him at midnight, he'd get on the phone, talk to him. And, you know, all those lectures for a very long time, he didn't get paid. He just went because he said he had a hard time saying no. So if somebody calls up, this is a church group or it's a book club or something, will you come uh, speak? He'd go, yes. And he just, uh, I don't think it ever went to his head at all. He knew later on that Land Remembered had a big influence. It was it was his biggest hit, but he was never, never a, a worshipped his own notoriety at all. Is there something the book had an influence on, an action or a person or anything that he was maybe you would say most proud of? Well, I think probably most proud of the fact that young readers like it so much. He didn't write it thinking it would be used in schools or that young students, he just wrote it. You know, he wasn't thinking of a particular audience. I think he was very happy that it was um, so popular with young readers. And he often said that he was happy that, you know, young black readers really liked this skillet and like the character character or skillet because it gave him something to relate to. I think probably the biggest thing that, that he liked the most was uh, young people read it. And of course, again, so many of these old Florida natives, the Florida crackers that read it and, and would praise him for it. And they, a lot of them, they're not real book readers, but they said this book totally affected them and they felt he was writing about their family. And I think he felt once he heard that a lot, he knew he got it right as far as accuracy even though it's still a novel as my dad says you know we ain't got no learning 
but uh, we do <laughs> love the book Land Remembered. And I mean, the the, the impact is just, it, it, it's been told time and time again that this is part of the official welcome kit to Florida. Anyone I know that moves to Florida, I gift this book to them. I actually gifted a signed copy by your dad to my mother-in-law this last Christmas. Wow. It's her favorite book. And, you know, I, I found it. It's not signed to her. This was, you know, from before he passed. And I mean, it's just every copy I've ever owned, I've given away to somebody. So I've never had a copy that I've held on to just because I'm like, you have to read this. I mean, I was I was camping this weekend with some friends up near uh, Ocala and it just organically came up. And when I mentioned that I was talking to you this week, a lot of them were pretty excited. So I, I can't wait to share this. But did, did your dad ever mention anything about something he'd change about the book or something he would update. No. Uh, in fact, he said he wouldn't change one word about it when he was writing it. The editor had him change some things. So he did that. But once it was done, he said, I wouldn't change anything. He felt he'd just gotten it just right. He said with forever Island, they had the editors made him do a lot of changes. And he said, you know, writers, you've spent so much time writing it. I don't want to rewrite it, man. You know, but he said once he thought about it, the things that they had him change were right. He said, you know, there was a lot of junk in there that he didn't need to have in there. He wasn't focusing on the right thing. So he did make a lot of changes as he wrote that. And as I said, he did make some changes in Forever Island too. I think some of the characters, the way they died, uh, he was it was suggested that he'd do it a different way. And so he he made some changes beforehand, but once it was published, he said, nope. I'm not, I wouldn't want to change anything. I wish he had lived longer because he had some more books he wanted to write. And when I would speak to schools, kids would go, why don't you write another book about it? I said, well, you know, pretty much everybody's gone. And one smart kid said, why, why, don't, you, why don't you write a prequel? You know, what happened before all this happened? And I would love to see something like that happen. People ask me all the time, Rick, why don't you write, you know, the prequel or you know, come up with a, a next book and it's like well i'm not dad i'm not that kind of a writer i wish i was i've had a lot of people say like you were saying about sharing that book i've had a lot of people order a case for christmas or more than that a lot of them and a lot of land developers real estate agents they'll buy a case because they want to every time they sell a property or do some land development they want the people to read that book so it has had reached those kind of people. And so, the, and they spread the word too. And I think that's good. Spreading the good word, smuggling a land remembered into houses that just sold. What would you say, uh, what was his reflection on where Florida was headed before he passed and what you would think now, nearly 10 years later, he, he would think? I'm sure he'd be sad that overdevelopment. When I was a kid, we'd go to New Smyrna Beach. When I come down from Mississippi, we'd stay with my grandparents in land and we go over to New Smyrna Beach and they could rent a cabin there on the on the ocean, like right on the beach for about, I think it was like $15 a day or something. And they offered to sell that property to my granddad for $7,500. And he didn't buy it because he thought the property tax would be too much. And I had a talk in New Smyrna Beach a few years ago and I was trying to find that place. And it was just solid condos now. And that makes me sad and I'm sure it did him too. And when we moved to Florida in 1966 and went to Cocoa beach, it was different than it is now. Now it's solid hotels. And I understand that, you know, people make a living and people want to be there, but 
the old Florida that used to be there is getting harder and harder to find, especially along the coast. And I'm sure that that bothered him. Are you at all, do you at all keep up with, with Florida conservation or what's going on? Somewhat. I know he wanted to write a book about the uh, Indian river lagoon Mm. and about crab, crab fishermen there. And that, that part of Florida, that waterway is in bad shape because of so much runoff, I guess, of, fertilizers and things and that water sometimes pretty pretty gnarly there but he never got that book out i'm sorry that he didn't was there any other stories he ever talked about writing or, or wishing he, he he could write he was going to do one i would love if he had done it he wanted to write one about the swamp ape <laughs> is there enough there that would have been... or is he just going to make it all up I'd probably make it up. Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny. funny thing. Like Alain remembered most of the stuff that happens in there really happened. Of course, the characters are made up, but you know, the things of floods and the hurricanes and fires and stuff like that, mosquito swarms that really happened. He said the one thing he totally made up was when Saul was selling baby buzzards down in <laughs> Miami. I totally made that up, but the rest of the book, it's largely based on history, historical facts. How, man, you know somebody's done that. You know, Florida's weird enough. There's so much happened here. You yeah. know somebody sold some baby buzzards at some time. I, I think. Yeah, maybe, know, maybe, maybe a story. I was in touch once with Carl Hyatson, and he was saying, he said it's his favorite book. And he said he had his kids read it, and they all loved it. And Craig Pittman, another um, guy that does podcasts in Florida, interviewed me, and he was talking about how that was his favorite book, too. And uh, I did. I've done so many talks where I met really amazing people. In fact, one of them I did at uh, John Landau's house down in, in the Keys. You know, John Landau makes Avatar and Titanic and all those mm-hmm. movies. And then I did a talk once on Sanibel Island, and and they told me before I I did the talk, this guy really wants to take you out to dinner. He wants to talk about cattle. I was like, well, I don't know a lot about cattle, but they were really insistent, and he wanted to do it. The night before we got there, it says, no, I really need to rest. I kind of put him off. I didn't know who this was. And then after my show that night, he took us out to a real nice dinner. And I still didn't really know who he was until we went outside and I saw this BMW, like one of a kind car. Then then we looked him up on Google and his family owns Fruhoff and Peterbilt and all these huge manufacturing companies. And But he was a big fan, just a huge fan of the land remembered. One of my questions was, was what's the most random i don't know just coincidence or, or or outreach you've seen i don't know if you people have recognized you on the west coast or what or anything like that but it sounds like some of those well, instances were probably good candidates for for just moments you never thought would happen i've had a lot of things out here on the west coast where like we were at a we live in wine region here the central coast wine region and i went to one and the server we were just talking and she said, she, I said, where are you from? She says, Florida and go, Oh, have you ever read this book? A land remembrance. You go, Oh my God, I have my whole family's read that. And I was sitting at a, outside a, a lodge here, a, a, basically a bar. And I saw this lady coming in with a guitar case and I said, Oh, the band's here. And I figured, well, you came from Fresno or Bakersfield or something. I said, where are you from? She goes, Orlando or Florida. And I go, Oh, I had just flown in that day coming back from Florida. And I said, Oh, I was in Orlando this morning. And I had this gut feeling. I said, you ever hear of a book called a land remembered? She goes, Oh my God, by Patrick D Smith. She actually knew his full name. And they go, yeah. And she says, I've read it. 
my family's read it. I give it to all my nephews and nieces. And uh, she was, uh, I, I went home and got a copy and signed it for her and took it in. And um, I just have had many, I've been on an airplane. We're flying along and I hear people, I heard somebody talking about it one time on a flight to or from Florida. And they were talking about a book about old Florida. And I said, you're talking about a land remember? And he goes, yeah. And I said, that was my dad. And he goes, oh my God. <laughs> and I've run into a lot of people that from Florida and they go, you know, I tell them it's my dad. And they all, oh God, please, when you're in Florida, come visit us. We own this big property down there. We have a yacht and come in and see us. And all this kind of stuff. <laughs> you're, uh... It's seldom I get to do, but. Yeah, yeah, I get a little bit of notoriety just because I'm related. Oh my gosh! When I told people I was talking to you, I mean, it just, you know, it's 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 a big deal. And and to me, you know, this is, I don't know what it is. I can't really put my finger. I think it's just the relatability. It's the the characters of the book are so. I'm always waiting for the foot to drop. What's their flaw? What's their hang up? Where you know where's going to be the 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 issue we all have? But it, the characters are so likable and but yeah. but the book you know i've heard other people say the book is not hopeful you know it's not a it's not a happy ending it's it's kind of like it leaves it up to us where do we go from here it's not the happiest yeah. book but it's in a weird way it does give you hope well none of his books are happy <laughs> you know if you read the other ones they they never end in a, in a happy way and maybe he was maybe that's a little impression of the way he looked at things he grew up in the depression and they didn't have much. And if you read his books, his other books, he's always writing about, the, you know, downtrodden in life. Yeah. And I think that's because he did say once in an interview, he did that because when he grew up in Mississippi, he'd go to school and there'd be other kids that didn't have shoes or they didn't have food for lunch. So he saw a lot of that. And he always kind of looked out for the underdog in all of his books, especially if you read and The River is Home. Those are very poor people. And, you know, he just always comes to their defense in a way, but it never ends really happy. And, of course, in the land, remembered, it goes 110 years. People don't live that long, so they have to pass away somehow. Who do you think, liter literarily speaking, is his successor? Or who do you think has carried on that torch of making an impact or drawing attention to old Florida since then? That kind of writing... I, I can't name one. I named some that came before him. He did his master's thesis on Marjorie Kenan Rawlings. And I, I can see some influence from that in his writing, but I, I love Carl Hyacin, but dad didn't <laughs> because I mean, his, his stuff's just funny. You know, he, he's hilariously funny. And, um, Randy Wayne white. I like him a lot too, but I don't really, see, I don't see anybody writing the, the work that dad did. I've had writers contact me and say, I've written this book. It's a lot better than your dad's. Will you read it? <laughs> no, I don't want to read it. <laughs> not the yeah. best way to approach. That's not how you ease into things. Let me. Yeah, this is better. <laughs> first. Yeah. I have heard your your dad's book described as a bolt of lightning that entered Florida culture just out of nowhere, and it was gone like that. And it's it's been this thing that has had this lasting impact, but it was just fast and immediate. And there hasn't been one since. Well, that's why he said he wanted to write it. Like I told you earlier, he said, you know, there have been books about Florida history and Florida characters, and there's some good ones. He just wanted to do this one in the way he wanted to do it, where it's really about the characters and, and what they go through. And it, it struck a nerve somehow, and it's still doing that. 
Was there a place in Florida that he really connected to, as well as you? Because there's so much variety, and you know, people think, you know, how how different can it be? There's so much. Mm-hmm. What would you say would be that place, if any, for for the both of you? I don't know if there's one. I mean, we loved Deland when it was the Deland of the 1950s. Today, I love Mount Dora. I love going there. Sanibel Island, yeah. He wanted to move at, at one point. He and my mom wanted to move up to Cedar Key, and That's just things happened, and he never got to do it. I, I like that too. He likes old Florida. You know, he wouldn't be at all uh, attracted to Miami Beach. Or when we moved to Florida, I was disappointed we didn't move to Cocoa Beach. We lived in Merritt Islands. Like, God, Dad, you could have moved five miles further east, and we'd have been on the beach. <laughs> but you know, he was—he's not a beach person. So, uh, you know, he, he liked the older Florida places. I think he probably loved Okeechobee and places down in South Florida, LaBelle, LaBelle, places like that where you could go get a good old Southern dinner and meet old Southern people. And he just, he related to those people. Yeah. He, I mean, you, you talked about his, his voice. It, oh man, it's like molasses, you know, it just, mm-hmm. uh, smooth and thick. And when he says Florida, it's, uh, Florida. And you know that, Florida. yeah, Florida, <laughs> and it's not the it's not the northern variation of Florida. It's Florida. It's Mississippi. Mississippi, thick, and uh, yeah, it's great, absolutely great. Well, this show is about talking to the folks who have had an impact on protecting and connecting to wild Florida. You know, I, I know that you probably know plenty of anecdotes, but there's so much reach and so much influence this books had that you'll you'll never even know. You know, the the decisions that politicians and legislators and um, folks have made all around the, the state have been influenced by this book or a love of this book and a love of the ideas in it. What, what's something you'd encourage folks in Florida to do to continue protecting Florida? Because as much as things have been developed and changed, there is still so much effort being done to protect what's left. And there's a lot of good progress being made. Have you seen anything besides, besides writing a best-selling book, you know, what, what, what else would you recommend folks do? Well, just, you know, think twice before you put in another Walmart or, you know, there's so much development there that I think is unnecessary. And I don't know how we influence that. I don't. And I, I think your governor would not influence stopping to do that. I mean, it's kind of all that's developed, developed, and eventually going to run out of resources for that. And we are going through climate change and there's going to be some problems with some of these coastal places. I think Miami's already having a lot of problems. So we need to slow down, I think, and think about it. You just can't keep developing like this forever or whatever you move there for is not going to be there anymore. It's sad. Last question is, uh, you know, you've been asked this a million times, so I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but what is the status of a movie adaptation? And what can we do about it? Oh my gosh, it's just, it makes too much dang sense not to do. Yeah, you're right. I've been asked that a hundred thousand times, I think. Uh, It is an option right now. Uh, It's been an option several times. And and option means somebody puts some money down and during the period of time of that option, nobody else can start working on it. Yep, they have have basically the option to buy the rights. Yes. And so one company, one company bought them, well, it's going on 25 months now. The option they bought was for 18 months with the right to renew it after 18 months. And they did. So they've had it now for almost going on three years. And I, I don't really see much happening yet. And it disappoints me greatly because that puts it on hold. 
for all that time. And I get people all the time. I mean, all the time asking me about the rights and why is it in a movie? Why is it in a movie? I, I have contacts in Hollywood and this and that. And right now it's kind of in suspension until these guys either do something or their option wears out in about a year, I guess. I want to say it as much as anybody. I can't tell you. You nailed it. Everybody wants to see it as a movie. And it's not just people in Florida that like it. You know, Little House on the Prairie was set in, what, Kansas? or and, But people everywhere related to that. And just because this is a Florida book, it's not going to, you know, they make a movie, people are going to love it everywhere. It's like Lonesome Dove or Yellowstone or one of those things. And it's just so hard. You see some of the stuff that comes out of Hollywood. It's like, why do they spend money on that? We know it's going to have an audience in Russia. We know that. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, you're right. And, and that's the thing. Seeing the success of some of these Western shows like Yellowstone, man, it would be a great episodic series where, you know, 10 parts or whatever exactly. it is. Where it, I think that would actually serve it better, where you could take your time a little bit working through some of these chapters to where you wouldn't have to cram it in to a, a single movie. Right. That would be, and it's so culturally appropriate now to just, you know, binge watch a 10 part series. They would have to be at least three, you know, take each generation as a different episode, but it could be stretched out. You could develop the characters further. You could do so much. And it's, I've had so many people, some of them with Hollywood connections asking about it. And it's like, okay, well, put your money down. And this one company has, but I, I'm not real expecting anything to happen. Yeah, I'm not too hopeful about it. And I know people, I know Clint Eastwood has been personally handed a copy and I have friends that are in the business that uh, have said, well, I give a copy to this person or that person. Maybe Clint Eastwood's like these people we talked about earlier. It sits there and he never reads it. I don't know. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, most books on my bookshelf I haven't read, <laughs> but uh, that I want to have. Yeah, man, that is, that's the most obvious next step, the most obvious next step to do. And with such a good time yeah. to do it, especially. It seemed like too, with, you know, with the success of Yellowstone, it's like, it's perfect time. It's, you know, oh, like, it's it's exactly the type of show that would work and the story that could really propel these kind of issues uh, into the mainstream again um, mm -hmm. and revamp book sales, of course. And just it seems like such a good time with how much is being done in Florida and how much effort. You know, a, a film came out this year, a documentary about the Florida Panther, and it's doing really well. And I expect it to. Oh, yeah. Uh, Path yeah. of the Panther. I expect it to win some pretty serious awards. Um, and it's just like, man, this is it's just ripe. Yeah, I had some I had some friends. I had some friends that really wanted to get the option. They were kind of bidding against the company that get it, did it. They just uh, did a uh, I don't know if it's been released yet. A movie about the Florida, the highwaymen, you know, the painters. Oh yeah. Went around Florida. What kind of, and, uh, uh, what kind of story are they going to tell? Is it documentary style or? Well, they got characters in there, so it's not totally, I mean, they've done some reenactment stuff. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. I've wished, wished them well with it, but, um, I agree completely. You know, it needs to be made into a movie and I was hoping it would happen in dad's lifetime. It didn't. I was hoping it happened in my lifetime, but it may not if they don't get going with it and uh, i sold the option to forever island about two years ago and that didn't go anywhere yet either disney i'll have to say disney once bought the option for forever island and then they started they were going to develop a resort out in colorado and they're going to tear a mountain down or do something like that and you know people didn't want to see that happen 
And there was so much ruckus about that that uh, they decided they'd back off forever island because it's a story about real estate developers ruining the land. So uh, that didn't work either. Probably best not to, you know, bring attention to the exact thing you're, you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. I used to go to Kissimmee with my friend when we, we were still in high school. His father owned a Fat Boys restaurant over there, and he'd go over there and work for him on the weekend. And we'd go over there, and that was the Kissimmee that I knew, which was a little cow town then. And uh, they still had a rodeo there. And it's like when we go to Florida now and go to Kissimmee, it's like, oh my god, what happened? You know, it's like t-shirt. Uh, rides god it's just it's so overdeveloped hotel 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 yeah they completely ruined Kissimmee, in my opinion and that's all because of disney spreading around there oh, that's my wife sneezing sorry <laughs> oh no you are fine you are fine i'm sure well i i did a paddle of shingle creek recently from downtown orlando to uh east lake toho and uh it's still so wild it's crazy to go through the i have a beautiful photo i have a beautiful photo i took there uh of that area right by the, they have a little history uh, museum there. And I did a talk there and that's really pretty right there. That, that I have a beautiful photo right there. You look around there and it's just nothing but solid hotels and tourist stuff. No, there's, um, you know, the Florida wildlife corridor is pushing to protect 40% of Florida. And that's, I mean, you know, by any measure, if 40% of your state is protected, especially the third yeah. largest, that's a, if Florida can do it, anywhere can do it. We know plenty of states out West have gotten ahead of that, including California, just such large swaths. Yeah. And there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of really, uh, really awesome efforts to yeah. protect those most special places. Where, where I live. Where I live here in California, I live on the coast, and I can drive up Highway 1 for about 75 miles and not see a hotel. Really? Well, you see one, maybe. But yeah. no houses, nothing. It's just preserved. And, you know, I would love to see Florida slow down on their development. Is there anywhere to find out what you're doing next or, or what where you're going, and are you still speaking and all that? No, I think I'm probably done with the speaking tours. I did about 350 shows over eight years, and uh, I'm probably not going to do that again. I do maintain some Facebook pages of a land remembered fan club, a, re a land remembered fan page. I have a website, a land .com, And you can always go there. And if I have anything to announce, I, I do a lot of blogging on there. So I have some blogs that you'll see there and I just kind of keep you appraised. And if anything happens with a movie, I'll make a lot of noise about that. Do you still get out, you know, folks reaching out about talks and whatnot? All the time. Yeah, I get invited a lot. But last time I did it, I was out there. I did two my two last shows in Orlando, and I donated all my AV equipment to a school. I gave them a lot of books, so I don't have an inventory out there of books anymore. I don't have the equipment to do my show. It was a multimedia show. So it's a lot harder for me to go out there now. I'll probably be out of, in Florida again in January because my sister is still living in Melbourne. I'll go out there and visit her. her. And I was there and I think early this year, maybe April or something. So I go out once or twice a year just to visit and, but not to do any tours anymore. You know, if the right situation came up, I'd put on the garb and go out there. <laughs> I still have my show, you know, on my computer. It's a, a Apple keynote show and it's very good, I think. So I could still do it if somebody provides all the AV equipment, and, you know, I could still do it, but uh, I'm not planning to right now. Well, thank you so much. You know, it's probably strange to just, you know, 
have people reach out all the time and say how much, you know, this has affected them and they relate to it. They feel like they know you, know your dad, but it's, uh, it's hard to describe the impact it's had. Um, even personally, it's just something about it makes you, it makes you feel like you've got that one portal back to what it used to be. And you can hold on to that. I love being able to talk about it and share what I can with it. And I love doing the shows because I knew I was spreading the word to a lot of people that needed to hear it. You need to get exposed to that. So I'm happy to talk to you and other people, you know, do what I can to keep it going. Awesome. Well, we'll do what we can. You're doing good work. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Okay. Remember, if you haven't already, get a copy of the book, read it. If you don't have a copy, reach out to me, Mason at Adventure Sports Podcast. I will mail you one if you're one of the first three people. You can also reach out on Instagram uh, or Facebook. And if you got young ones in the house, get the student edition, a landremembered.com.